Man, so I know everybody's been looking forward to season two. I've been looking forward to season two. Have you been looking forward to season two? Konnichiwa! Konnichiwa, Hajime Mashite. There you go. We are we are saying hello. Hello. To season two. From the other side. From the no, other side, from the outside? No, it's just Behind season, the season knee. I don't know how to say season in Japanese. Wow, okay. Hey, I only took like four semesters. <laughs> All right, word. And I watched some anime, so we're good. <laughs> that is not the extent of our knowledge for the show, guys. No, no, we're, really that's our, the extent of our knowledge, maybe for Japanese. Maybe, maybe, but probably not even accurate then. But uh, no, I really did take uh, four semesters. That's it, though. Yeah, yeah. So that's I'm what I'm saying. saying. I, I did take four semesters of the language. Yeah. At one point, I could I could almost make out kanji. You know, I'm really bad at, at reading it, but I can. I can speak. Okay. Well, well, we'll try this season. We will attempt. I'm sure it's horrible because yeah, why not? I have one of the worst accents known to man. Duly noted. <laughs> I have spoonerisms. Yeah. I'm from Montana. I was raised in Texas, and I also spent a lot of time in the country in the hood. That's where I spent my my time. So uh, not chilling outside shooting b-ball. No. So see, I, it's going to be really interesting to see how I pronounce some of these names. Um. Yes, it will. Yes, it will. So. I mean, you and I both kind of have some experience with with a couple of things uh, in the realm of Japan. Uh, one of the concepts we both have talked about a little bit is is bushido. Yeah, and I think it's uh, it'll be an interesting topic to really see come out. Yeah, I, one of the things is like when I was younger. I, I think like with anybody my age, I think at the time I fell in love with the romanticized text of the Way of the Warrior, or, you know, bushido. Okay, and Bushido, just for those that don't know, because this is just a teaser, we want to give you an idea of what season two is going to feel like. Yeah. And I think the best way to do that is that we we're talking about it, we set the scene here, mm-hmm. talk about Bushido, because a lot of these guys are going to be involved with what we would call Bushido nowadays. Right. And, and you know, you can compare Bushido to, like, the European Code of Chivalry. Uh, in fact, a lot of people do. There are subtle differences. Where and I, I feel, and this is completely opinionated here, I feel that the Code of Bushido is more uh, refined and more strict, or rather stringent, than the Code of Chivalry. And let me let me let me point this out: the, the idea of Bushido as we know it, common today, is you would see it in like most people. I think would run into it either in a movie or an anime. Mm-hmm. It's probably nothing like what true Bushido. That we're talking about, what you're discussing is... No, and you're right. It's it's not. You know, it, it is in the sense that it's a set of rules. Right, but oh, I um, not to get too deep in here, I just want to ask, it, because this is, we're just laying out the groundwork here. And some of the things I've discovered along the way, just already getting into it. That the samurai is actually, like, Shogun and Samurai and all these, these titles are taken from old administrative ranks. Because the Japanese... Uh, Back in the day, loved some clerical ranking titles, caste systems. Uh, so they have the daimyo, you know, yeah. shogun, all these, uh, the samurai, the 
Senkai, you know, all of these. The Senkai. I don't remember what the name was. Are, are I, we playing? Are we playing Beyblade or something? Or Yu Gi Oh now? Is that but I'm saying they're they're all these different levels that yeah. they had that were administrative ranks. Usually, like That's one correct. person was over, a, you know, so many hectares of land, and somebody was over this farm, and somebody was over twenty workers, and right. somebody was over. It's kind of like the military. So it didn't start out like that. In fact, a lot of a large portion of Japan for a long time, and we'll get into this when we start talking about the seasons, or excuse me, when we talk about the episodes and whatnot and kind of the the uh key players we'll, we'll expand on that a little bit but japan went through a period of time where there were really no rules like there was no it was it was kind of chaotic it was barbaric man every man for himself type mentality stuff um bushido came in there and kind of helped dictate that you're right there was the emperor and the emperor had the Shogun and the Shogun had Damyo that worked for him and that was the way to build the caste system. One thing to point out, it just, and this is also to share a little bit of the similarity between Bushido and Chivalry. Bushido and Chivalry both were pointed towards the working, not the working class, but the warrior class, uh, such as you know, in, in that sense, the knights are the ones who upheld the chivalry. Well, well the, the noble warriors, they're not talking about the everyday foot soldier here. That, but, uh, but, but you know, but, they were. But, it, yeah, I was like, they did have rules, but the rules get more strict the higher up you go and for how higher up you go. So, I was like, the emperor has more rules than anybody, but not really. But for addressing him, for talking to him, for going there, you know, you have the whole royal court language. You have the way right. of dress. You are going to have a million different rules for interacting with him. Sure. And then as you come down the chain, there are more rules for how you have to act and how people have to act for you. And just like in feudal Europe, like you were saying, both they're both feudal societies. They both run on this system. They were. Yeah, they both do. You're absolutely right. Uh, Bushido had eight tenets or virtues that are still in place uh, today that kind of make up the, the entire code. You know, one is righteousness, heroic courage, benevolence slash compassion, respect, integrity, Honor, duty, and loyalty. Duty and loyalty are together, and then all as well as that is uh, self-control. And these are all kind of just like tentpole ideas, right? They're not. This is not like just do these eight virtues in your right. And, and so these these eight virtues are kind of the 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 the, uh, the foundation, right? You know, they they are the piece that held that holds through the entire the entire code. Uh, I mean, you can expand on it. And again, we'll talk more about this as we right when we do an actual because this is just a little sneak peek, kind of what we're looking at, what we're trying to do with the season, and we right. wanted to come talk to you guys and give you an idea of what you're probably going to be getting into. Exactly. You know, talk about things, but anytime you talk about Bushido, you have to talk about samurai. You got to talk about the caste system that's in place, where the only way where there are certain people there are there in, in the history who have been able to transcend the the, cla- the caste system where up until the point was you were born into your into your class if you were born in the warrior class then you were in the warrior class if you were born to be a merchant then you were a merchant if you were born to be a farmer then you were a farmer that's what you did unless you married out of it like let's say you were a farmer and you married into the merchant class that's your way out of the farming world uh but realistically where you were born is where you stayed there are a couple of uh, instances in time in which this has been, you've been able to transcend that. One is Hideyoshi Hashiba. Um, he, he actually ended up becoming the, the major unifier of Japan in the Sengoku Jidai era, the warring states era. Uh, it's interesting to mention him now. And I know we have, we have, um, 
we have him on tap for an actual show. But the interesting thing to kind of tease with now is he he did transcend it. He transcended his class system so well that he made it to the top, the top of the Japanese society at the time and or the class system at the time. And he just wasn't able to go any further because of his his less than noble birth. He was born uh, the son of a farmer. And he befriended Oda Nobunaga. And long story short, Nobunaga brought him on, on board. And he became, he didn't start as one of the generals, but he worked his way up to becoming one of uh, Nobunaga's right-hand men, top general. And when Nobunaga was... Um, Had his ambition? Yeah, his ambition kind of took the best of him. That was a reference uh, to an old video game. I love that game. Nobunaga's ambition, I have it, Lord of Darkness. Uh, on the Super Nintendo, still play it. Um, but anyway, the point is, you know, he he was able to transcend that, and then when the split happened, he was able to unify everyone, continue the unification plan, because the entire goal of of Nobunaga at that point was to unite Japan behind one sword. So, so we're kind of learning a few things here, because I mean, again, this is a preview episode, so I don't want to get too deep. Sure, but it just kind of set up the general area, the main time period here that you were talking about, the warring states that we're going to be looking at these samurai. Now, there'll be some on either side of that uh, more modern contemporary style and some, I guess we would call them historical ancient style. Right. Uh, It's a feudal society that's attempting to unify. So it's much like what we see in Europe. Oh, yeah. But during the Middle Ages where there's fiefdoms and kingdoms and they're uh, merging and separating, but eventually form whole nations. Right. And see, the emperor is the absolute power. But over time, the emperor had less power, was less able to control the the entire right uh, the entire kind realm. of like we see in um, England with like the Magna Carta and then the exactly and then the Acts of Parliament and stuff where they come together and the nobles actually sort of rebel pretty hard and then let people remain in power right it's almost exactly parallel in that basic sense that Japan sees a period where the nobles who are in charge of their armies because armies are raised. Pretty much the same way that you would see them raised in Europe during this time, which is to say um, each uh, daimyo or shogun or whoever is over a certain area. Because at times there were multiple shoguns, usually warring, but somebody owed men. They pledge men to that. If you had such a spread, you were expected to provide so many people to roll deep and... uh, that's how they knew how many. But the thing was, again, just like if you've ever watched uh, Game of Thrones or something like that, you know, how many of your bannermen are actually going to show up and whose side are they going to be on and right. who do you know? Uh, it's very much that way. I mean, if you, I would, sure. I would put that the warring states, right, uh, is very much Game of Thrones Japan. Uh, yeah, I would definitely agree to that. There's not so much an Iron Throne as there is the idea that if the Shogun falls, then the emperor regains power. Yeah, there's a lot of a bound, there's there's a lot of a battle between their power struggle because you're right. The power had already been had already shifted from the the emperor to the shogun having more power, but the shogunate wasn't strong enough to keep unite or rather to unite all of the all of the daimyo. So what ends up happening is there's this you have imperialists and you have those for the shogunate where 
the the um, the goal at the end is whoever you support, they're going to remain in power. And so there was there was a big struggle there in, to determine who what what lords would follow the emperor and what lords would follow the shogun. And you see a lot of training and shifting. But what it's interesting for this season is again context. I think context is key here. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a time of shifting allegiances. It is. It's a time of uncertain leadership in the sense of um, you wake up one morning and you may be like, I have to defend the emperor. And then the next day you can look out and see a siege laid to you and go, so the Shogun sounds really great. You're right. <laughs> or you may have you may be flipping sides the same way. And one of the things that I think we really looked at when we looked at what samurai we were going to discuss wasn't just the idea of examining this pop culture take of Bushido, but looking at the idea of this lone samurai as a as a warrior on horseback that just simply devastates battles. They're more generals, but yeah. there are also a lot of guys who are completely unaffectual as far as they don't really get involved in leadership roles as far as armies or uh, campaigns or anything like that. There are these... It's kind of funny because there's always a grain of truth somewhere, right? Sure. That there are these lone warriors that uh, Musashi comes to mind. Oh, yeah. Musashi there, there's these lone warriors who really are this badass, who really are like, no, nah, I fought 60 dudes in one. Yeah, well. I, I've never lost a duel in you know 50 years of being a swordsman. Mm-hmm. I killed my first man when I was 13. I beat a dude with a stick. Yeah. Yeah. That guy exists. Right. And then and, and there are some generals who are, are legendary, like oh, yeah, and, uh, Shingen Takeda. You, you know, I mean, wow. You, you know? look at these people and you just think, man, this has to be a video game, right? right. And all of a sudden, like, in researching it, some things become more fantastical. Sure, like, no one so. has, like, demon wind strike powers, right? Or can call down, like... Uh, a kamikaze. Uh, yeah, yeah, or anything like this. But then you you find these guys who... Yeah, I can almost understand why why you make up these mythical powers for them because they could take a they could take an army of like three hundred and lay siege to a, a you know a, a stronghold of two thousand right and still win like massively win or they they would they would charge out and battle and and just like rampage through a deal and it's like oh no he was the most superb spearman that ever existed. It's like, how do you say that? Oh, he cut he cut three guys in one swipe. And you're like, it's got to be a bullshit story, right? And then you find out like somewhere the sword or this fucking spear or staff or bow or whatever. is No, it's it's like a legendary weapon that's actually right. regarded and held in a temple or a museum or something. You're like, Jesus, no wonder this dude has a type of legend but and, and has this type of abilities. But also kind of to, to touch on that a little bit, you know, there are two, and we'll talk about this too, there are two different... Uh, weapons that come along during the time frame. The interesting thing is there's a story between the makers of how how powerful they are. There's the Muramasa blade and there's the Masamune blade. And the the story is if you encounter if you're on the road and on your journey you encounter God with the Masamune blade, even God himself will be cut is the level of, of power within the blade. But the reverse story is for for the Muramasa blade is they took the Masamune blade and the Muramasa blade and uh, they went to this river, this stream with moving water. <clears throat> and there are some leaves in the water just kind of running by. And so what they do is they put the Masamune blade in the water and a leaf comes by and touches the blade. And 
I may have this, I may have this backwards, but I think it's, it's that's right. It's the Masamune blade. It touches the blade and the leaf splits in two. It actually splits in two before it touches the blade and goes around the blade and travels up the stream. Then they put the Muramasa blade in the, in the water and another leaf comes by. But instead of getting close to the blade, it goes around it. So the thought process in that mind or was that, or in that story was the Muramasa blade, instead of encountering it in a battle, its strength is so so great that it would keep you from getting into battle with it. And there, there's lots of these weapons like that. And one of the things I like to think about or talk about whenever it comes to samurai and weapons in this time period and all this is that um, samurai, for what people I think don't know from what movies don't generally show. Now, there are a few that do have instances of this and have good representations, I think, of the time period and the tactics. That's correct. More likely than not, highly, highly skilled archers. I mean, they're trained since childhood to be deadly accurate and to shoot from riding. And they're much like Mongols in this tactic of they're a mobile. They're not just mobile infantry, right? They're not. And they're not just a cavalry. That's definitely a true statement. Because they're going to come riding through shooting, just railing through you. And then they have staffs they use. On it, and the katana itself is shaped the way it's shaped. Now, there's tons of stories, and who knows is that it works like a saber, any other cavalry saber. The slice on it, the bend allows you to slice because it, it's not a brick wall hit like a straight sword, like a G would be. It's curved, mm-hmm. and that curve allows you to roll off whatever you're attacking. So you, which is a good point. To bring up. So it's not yeah. the while we think of the katana as being a foot weapon, it is. It's it's the weapon the samurai has at all times because normally when we see samurais in movies, comics, uh, TV shows, what have you, they're they're indoors or they're walking around. They're not in armor. They're they're doing their right. That's true. But in battle, a samurai would be on horseback with a bow, in his banner waving, and a big silk cushion flying off his back that actually stops arrows, which is amazing to me. And a bow and arrow would be in his hand, not a katana. Right, and that's a good point. You know, there are different weapons for the for different. Right, they're a skilled warrior. They they're not mm-hmm. just relying on one weapon no, always and forever, just like anyone else. Well, so I, and that's a thing to point out. In Eastern European uh, or just European arts, European arts were focused more on they had a blade and they had a shield. Uh, they may have had a sidearm, but I, I don't recall. Well, I mean, if you look at if you look at historical European martial arts like HEMA stuff, mm-hmm. there are a ton of weapons. And I think every skilled warrior culture, no matter where they're from, has the right tool for the right job mentality. I mean, as humans, that tends to be what we do. So, yes, I mean, uh, you got pikesmen. You you have longbowmen in Europe, I'm talking about. Um, Now, of course, Japan has equal counterparts to these, in some cases, exact counterpart. But you have things like a halberd that's used to open armor. You have, you know, they they have maces. They have side. Sidearm, short swords, daggers. Um, I don't think it's crazy. I'm not an expert on this. I look at a lot of it because I look at weapons a lot, but I don't think you're crazy in thinking that they're pretty parallel. Yeah, but what's interesting, I think, for Japan is that being a Western society, being a Western culture, us, you and I, it's really interesting to see this because we don't know what the hell it is. We don't encounter it every day. It's foreign. That's true. It's exotic. Mm-hmm. It has this. And I think the public has that. And it's something that um, samurai movies are a genre. Yeah. And they've captured, Japanese cinema has captured American pop culture 
several times over many years. And I think that we see that romanticized, uh, polished version of it, and it becomes so interesting. That's my personal take is I'm interested in exploring this topic because I think a lot of what I know purely comes from a weapon and tactics base. Mm -hmm. And then everything else is what I've seen in movies or comics or TV. Yeah. And I've already researched some, so I'm like, oh, wow. Yeah. But I think that's the difference is we know what knights are. Sure. I think most people have a general idea of what knights are. And if you've ever heard of like a country knight, Japan has country knights. Uh, It's just interesting to see that there's this, I would say, almost parallel. Yeah, there are a lot of parallels. I mean, there there are a lot of parallels in, in, in when you compare both scenarios or both situations, both uh, tactics. But one thing I'm looking forward to this season is a deeper dive into into the the characters, into the the figures, and into the weapons. And then also to the into the time periods, you know what it was like back then. You know, we, it wasn't called Japan. No, uh, I mean that was that was kind of a thing there too. You know, what currency did they use? Yeah, you know? and, and the fact of Bushido. Bushido is important because Bushido is this code that most samurai mm-hmm. tend to care about. Oh yeah, it's a highly idealized version. I would say. I think it's the. I, I don't know how to put this the correct way. I'm not using this as the as a literal thing here. It's like the Bible. It's how you should be doing things. Yeah. But no one lives 100% by the Bible and no one lives 100% by Bushido. And there's also interpretations. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of these guys live by their own code. But it is interesting to see that a lot of times uh, dissect the idea, like you said, by diving deeper into the characters, like we did with the gangsters, and see, do these guys bow because of political or current pressures or because of societal pressures or because of peer pressure or is it purely because that's what is righteous and Bushido says I should do and where my loyalty and honor should be. Yeah. And that's that's a really good question. I'm looking forward to to diving deeper. Yeah, because I think we're gonna have I think we're gonna have different opinions on that one. And we might. Yeah, I mean I think we might. I and think that's gonna be the interesting part too. Because we we have a lot in common, and we also have a lot um, to bring to the table in terms of discussion and what we know about. Right. I mean, I think everyone's got the kind of the biggest takeaway from this. I hope for the fans and listeners is that Shalom is r- r- eager and ready to go and has knowledge uh, oh, yeah. and ready to access in his RAM. Whereas I am <laughs> definitely learning this as I go with my own biases and preconceived notions. And a lot of that's because I look at this from an academic, practical view kind of a way. Mm-hmm. I'm not trying to incorporate it, understand it, do it. I'm trying to learn it. Like right. learn this is what those were. This is what those guys did. This is who they were. Whereas I feel like your your approach is probably uh, more sensible, more emotional. Yeah, there's definitely emotional connection to this. I mean, there when we start talking about some of the the look, those of us who have ever, ever studied any history at all and loved history, when you find that piece of history that you love, you learn everything you can about it. Uh, I started out learning about European knights and, and the, the system, the chivalry and all that. And when I discovered Samurai and I discovered Bushido, I, that took over as my, my, um, my drive 
my, my, uh, I had to know about it. You know, that was my jumping off point is I had to know as much as I could about, about this topic because that's to me, this is the history I cared the most about. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's it, there's personal history. People, right. people run into stuff that speaks to them. And that's what we try to and find. That's that. what we try to find here. And that's kind of a, hopefully, you know, every season we'll find somebody who it, this is, it speaks to them and they go out and find more. I don't want you to just listen to the show. I want you to go find more. That's what the whole show's yeah. philosophy is, is average Joe's take a look at pop history and forgotten history and misunderstood history and everyday history. Right. And say, hey, look, we can do this. We can do this in a week. We can do this in two weeks. We can do this in a month. Right. What can you do? Don't just trust somebody that tells you something is something. Don't just trust a movie that shows you something is something. Right. Get out there and, and examine it. Yourself. Get out there and examine it. And when it's personal to you like this is to Shalom, it really, really gets to that fine grain matter. Like where you just, when you want to know what's up. And I, I want to know because like my thing is I've always seen samurai and katana uh, portrayed as these noble mystic uh almost you know invincible things weapons people tactics like yeah. if you followed bushido 100% you would survive every battle and kill 100 foes and every you know what i mean and obviously that's not true oh no but i think as a kid as a that was that was kind of how i perceived that that's how i learned about it and i haven't really gone and reexamined it so it'll be interesting for me to do that because honestly that's that's what i have to go on right Right. Is the idea of, oh, this is going to, yeah, when they're going to sling some blades and throw some throwing stars and then jump high in the air and shine their blade in your eyes and the sun reflecting. <laughs> and then they're going to cleave you right in half straight down the middle. So you somewhat have described ninja, but yeah, I mean. This, well, we'll is, probably also talk a little bit about ninja. I, I think we will. I think we kind of have to. Right. Because, yeah. I mean, I think in the West, there's a lot of confusion about ninja and samurai. And we are by, again, no means experts or historians. So we're going to get a lot of it wrong. But we're going to get a lot of it right. And we're going to do our best. That's the bottom exactly. line. Exactly. Uh, because the, the, the line between ninja and samurai is really hard to understand, I think, for people that don't live in that world. It's true. Because sometimes they're one and the same and sometimes they're not. Agreed. Anyway, uh, this has just been a little teaser, stinger, quick hit we wanted to run over what season two is going to look like, what we're excited for, what we're talking about. Uh, you got anything to add about season two? No, other than I'm incredibly excited and can't wait to get started. And uh, I'll definitely want to hear some feedback from you guys. When we go through these episodes, if you like, if you like what you're hearing, let us know. If you don't like something, please let us know that too. Uh, we're happy to kind of review the feedback and then maybe make adjustments based on the feedback we receive. Uh, but again, we love hearing about it. And if you want to hear about something, also just reach out and let us know. Yep, and the best way to do that is uh, nothistorians at gmail.com or on Twitter at nothistorians. You just let us know. Also on Podbean or on Apple uh, Podcasts, but I'll be honest, I don't think either of us is using Apple Vice too much right now, so right. I check the reviews when I can, but it's not the best way to get in touch with us. It's true. Uh, Podbean's Facebook, pretty too. good. Facebook's good. Twitter's good. Twitter's amazing. E- email's good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and shout outs to everyone else out there that's going through stuff trying to put a podcast together or trying to support podcasts like ours. We appreciate all of you. And uh, we hope to see you in 2018 Season 2 Samurai. Indeed. Next time.